0: I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum.
1: And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI, and this is In AI We Trust. Today we are so pleased to have on our show, Alexandra Reed givens Alex is the president and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology. She is an advocate for using technology to increase equality, amplify voices, and promote human rights. So essentially the perfect guest for our show. Prior to joining CDT, Alex served as the founding executive director of the Institute for Technology Law and Policy at Georgetown Law, and served as chief counsel for IP and antitrust on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Alex began her career as a litigator at Cravath, Swain and Moore in New York City, and taught as an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of Law. Alex also serves on the board of the Christopher and Dana, Dana Reeve Foundation, and is a mayoral appointee to DC's Innovation and Technology Inclusion Council. Alex, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your orientation to this subject, which we all have such a deep passion for. How did you develop this passion for human rights in the digital space?
2: So what's funny for somebody with my job title coming from the Center for Democracy and Technology is that I don't come to this as a technologist. I was a history major in college who cared about 20th century social movements. But to me, technology issues really are the social justice issues of our time. Whether you're talking about access to technology, whether you're talking about the ways that we get information or find community online, if we're talking about how people's data is used and what that can mean about you, all of those just have a huge impact on society today. And for me, that really is my driving mission.
0: That's terrific. And uh, to just unpack that a little bit more, so the CDTs, Center for uh, Democracy and Technology, I should say, is mission is to place democracy and individual rights at the center of the digital revolution. Uh, It Sounds like that's very well aligned with your personal mission and orientation. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like in practice and how you translate that aspiration into action and impact?
2: Sure, so I've just told you why this is my dream job. We get to work on all of the things that I described. whether it's connectivity questions to thinking about platform governance and social media uh, services, to thinking about data, to thinking about law enforcement use of technology as well, in particular, with the impact that that has on historically marginalized communities. We have a couple different theories of change. One is advocacy um, at the federal level, um, both in the US, where we work with the US Congress and with the executive branch, and then also in Europe, we have an office based in Brussels. So we think about changing policy. We also work in the courts, often filing amicus briefs in different cases to try and shape how decisions are being made there. And then we do a lot of direct to company advocacy. So we'll enter into an agreement with a company where we can go quite detailed in terms of the conversations about what practices they're following, whether they're thinking about new changes. And we try to give them harsh, but, but you know genuine advice on how they can do better. Um, And for us, that's a really important part of the puzzle as well, is trying to make those interventions not just at the policy level, but at individual decision-maker level as well.
1: So you bring so many different interesting threads to your leadership and to the discussion uh, as a lawyer, as someone who's deeply experienced in policy. um, And I'm curious how you see our application of the current laws on the books. How are we doing in terms of applying those, prosecuting them, ensuring that AI is subject to the laws that we currently have on the books?
2: It's a great question. I mean, we're seeing the rapid expansion of these new tools. Um, And I would argue in many cases, people aren't really thinking yet about how those current laws map onto the new technologies. I know that you've both done work in the hiring space. That's one of the areas that CDT is focused on as well. And to me, it really encapsulates this this issue very clearly. Um, So people are starting to think well about whether AI-driven hiring tools discriminate on the basis of race and gender. We've seen very famous examples of this, Miriam, I've heard you give lectures on this, right, of resume screening tools that downrated women because the tool had been trained on an existing employee group that was predominantly male. So it didn't recognize women's sports teams or women's colleges as having good value under the algorithm. Now, current employment law has something to say about that, right? Titles in the US, it's Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And people do know, I think there's an increasing awareness about the applicability of those laws. So, in that context, people are starting to do statistical audits to check for bias. They follow guidance that was issued by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in 1978. But that's only part of the story. So for example, people completely forget that that's not the only civil rights statute on the books. There is, for example, in the US, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And in Mm -hmm. Europe, there are analogous statutes that also look at other protected classes. So people are thinking about kind of one aspect of the law and not others. Just to talk about the Americans with Disabilities Act for one example, to kind of spell out what that actually means, that law requires that tests themselves have to be accessible to people with disabilities. But also it presumptively disfavors hiring selection criteria that screen out or tend to screen out people with disabilities. And what we see time and time again is that it's actually pretty easy for tools to run afoul of that. You could think of a resume screening tool that punishes people because of a gap on their resume without giving them an opportunity to explain why that gap existed. You could think of some of the gamified tests. So, you see tests, for example, where somebody has to hit the space bar on their keyboard over and over again to blow up a balloon in a simulation. And that's actually seen as a measure of risk. Well, what happened if you have a mobility impairment that means that actually affects how you're able to hit that space bar? Or we see some of these video tools where that an AI analyzes somebody's video interview, looking at vocal cues or eye contact as one of the factors that they analyze. And somebody with a visual impairment or someone who is autistic may interact with that test differently. Um, people aren't thinking about the legal liability that comes with that. Uh, and that's a huge glaring oversight that we need more people to pay attention to.
0: It's a great point and and such important work and I I think it's been a theme of several of our podcasts, um, this question of how much do we need to have kind of net new policy or legislation on artificial intelligence versus how much do we need to be focusing on how the existing statutes uh, should be applied in this new context. So I'm curious if you could just speak to your own view and evolution in terms of what the balance ought to be between those two things?
2: It's a great question. So I think my answer is that we need both, right? We need guidance from agencies, from lawmakers to show how existing civil rights laws apply to AI. So for example, again, in the US, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission really do need to issue new guidance about employee selection tools. I mean, the, the, the guidance on the books dates from 1978. That was a very different type of employee selection procedure to the types of things we're talking about now. So they really could benefit from revisiting questions like how creators validate the processes that they're using, what meaningful auditing actually looks like, um, covering it to update to include disability, which actually wasn't a federally protected civil rights. It didn't have its own federal civil rights statute at the time that the uniform guidelines were published by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, so that's one, one thing, is kind of having those agency be empowered to update their guidance, even without new statutes, update their guidance and the type of oversight and enforcement actions that they're bringing against companies. And I think that will be a wake-up call to help people understand what their obligations are and how they translate into this environment. Then I do think that there could be additional moves um, that would help again, just bring more transparency and accountability to the field. Um, There's a a bill that's been introduced here in the U.S., for example, the Algorithmic Accountability Act. The approach there is about mandating large companies, well-resourced companies, to carry out impact assessments for highly sensitive automated decision systems. That's just one potential form of intervention, but it's an interesting way of having Congress say, listen, these tools have a major impact on real-life people facing major decisions or inflection points in their life, let's make sure that there's auditing happening, that the audits have teeth, are made public um, and use that as a jumping off point to, to have a bit more informed conversation about what the impact of these tools can be.
1: Speaking of impact of these tools, uh, you've written recently about the repercussions of the January attack on the Capitol. In the wake of this incident, How do you propose Congress and companies tackle these issues such as content moderation, balancing the priorities that are key to your organization and our democracy of of civil rights and free speech and security?
2: You know, the January 6th attacks showed something that um, I think many of us has known for a long time which is just that the online world very easily translates into meaningful harm in the offline world um, and that these two things are deeply connected. At the same time, I think we're worried about what some of the reactions might look like. Um, there's no question that we have to worry about misinformation and disinformation online. That we have to worry about the proliferation of hate speech. That we have to worry about tools that sow further division as opposed to bringing people together. But when you start to think about what the regulatory solutions to that look like, it gets really complicated really fast, right? Not least because we have the First Amendment. So Congress actually can't make some, you know, come after some speech that is, that is lawful, no matter how awful and terrible it is. Um, but, even, but even more than that, because there's a real risk that platforms will overcorrect in the other direction. If they suddenly can be liable for political speech, what does that mean for the type of content moderation they're gonna do when people are organizing meaningful social movements online, where obviously that has been a huge driver of change and social you know, dynamism, um, in particular over the past year, we've seen it You know, e- even more recently. Um, so it means that there are these really hard competing tensions to, to try and balance. Some of the things that we come back to, because we can't just do nothing, right? Some of the things that we come back to is really putting pressure on the companies to be creative about the type of interventions that they're looking at. There's been an increased focus, for example, Around algorithmic amplification. So, not just what people are posting, sure, let's have people be able to share ideas online, but what are the companies choosing to amplify and how are they making those decisions? That's one really important intervention point. A second is thinking about these things of kind of how, um, you know, click through windows, fact checking, what is the way that we can get good information into the ecosystem? How do you get more information from trusted election officials, for example, from true public health experts to try and counter that misinformation and disinformation. So those are some of the places where I think there should be a more robust conversation, coupled with this same theme of transparency and public accountability. So having the platforms really explain what policies they have in place to govern content moderation, how they're making those decisions. Um, and to make sure that they're doing it in the most transparent way, so we can restore more public trust in a lot of the governance decisions that they're making.
0: A lot there, yeah, I'm um, and I, I wa- <laughs> no—it's amazing. It's it, I'm, I'm gonna—I want even more. So I'm gonna—I'm gonna actually ask you to expand on on a piece of it. Um, you know, obviously, the question of content moderation uh, is you know top of, of of mind, and you mentioned in your last answer uh, the role that. Technology can play um, at its best in uh, social movements and um, and improving societal outcomes of all kinds. And 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 I wanted to ask you about um, a project that you all recently launched, the Equity and Civic Technology Project, uh, which aims to have um, a positive effect on uh, some of these um, social sort of axes or dimensions. Um, which are often being talked about in the negative, but I think you're talking about them in terms of kind of how technology can help. So can you tell us a little bit more about your vision there and how you see it? Um, uh, what do you see it responding to and how you see it uh, playing out?
2: Yeah. So despite all indications to the contrary, I do remain optimistic about the impact of technology on society. And I say that after you know 20 minutes telling you the things I worry about. Um, in particular, there's a really rich conversation happening around how technology can improve the lives of citizens and the delivery of government services. Um, you know, everything from voter access, so helping people register to vote, understanding their options for voting, to the delivery of um, benefit services and those types of things. And there's a real energy around using technology in those spaces. Um, Education is another one that's absolutely top of mind in light of the pandemic, right? Where suddenly all of our kids were using technology as their way to access information and and go to school. So that raises really complicated questions when you think, how do you do that equitably and fairly, and make sure that if government services are moving into this online world they are continuing to perform at the high level that we need for such important services so a lot of our of our work does focus on the use of technology and education how to make sure that that's being done in a way that underscores privacy security equity and teaching good data hygiene to kids frankly as they spend more time online but then it also can morph over to other places like the use of um, of Uh, technology for governments that are allocating benefits. This is where AI comes up again. There are an increasing number of states that are moving to use AI-driven systems to decide who's eligible for benefits, or even after deciding who's eligible, how many, how much your your budget allowance should be. And there have been some examples of those decisions going really poorly, um, either through poor execution or poor design. And so again, we want to be a trusted voice that can go and help people get advice on how to do that better, both what their legal obligations are, because there are some real legal obligations in place for for governments using those tools, um, but also just what best
1: practices can be in the field. So you've obviously given so much thought to the field, uh, what companies are doing, the interplay with government, and it makes perfect sense given your background as a lawyer in policy, teaching, in private practice. So I feel like you're the perfect person to ask, and I'm sure you have been uh, by those inside, if you were advising the Biden administration on one to two recommendations you think are key to accomplish your mission for uh, a safer, more equitable democracy through digital technologies, what would those recommendations look like? So one is that the US really has just been missing
2: in global thought leadership about the responsible use of AI and data governance in general. Um, this comes all the way back to the fact that we don't have a federal law in the books governing consumer privacy in the US. So there's a real opportunity to close that gap, um, to show that we can be serious, we are serious about considering how data about people is collected used and shared, and making sure that we think about protecting people's rights in the online realm. I think another one goes to the point I was making earlier about empowering the existing organizations across government that already think about civil rights and consumer protection to think about how their interest area and the issues they care about really apply in the online realm. So whether that's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, HUD, which manages housing and urban development, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You know, we have this alphabet soup of agencies that are specifically charged with looking after consumers, but really do need help getting fully up to speed on the technological changes that are impacting their equities. Many of them are are doing this already, but they need even more resources to staff up. And then really importantly, in my view, with the new Biden administration coming in is better coordination from the White House, helping across those different agencies tie those threads together to think about what responsible data governance and AI governance looks like for all of those different stakeholders.
0: That's a that's a great list, and I, I hope that they are, are listening. Um, I'm particularly, you know, interested in this point about um, international thought leadership and and sort of seeing how the U.S. can um, sort of step forward into those international conversations a little bit more. I do want to ask one more question, uh, sort of on the same premise as as Miriam's, uh, but you know, instead of advising the Biden administration. Uh, One thing that we're seeing, Miriam and I, is that there are a lot of young people who are really excited about technology policy. Uh, Some of them are in law schools. Others are in policy schools. Others are engineers who are thinking about how they can get involved on that side. You've been on a lot of different sides of this, and you've seen a lot of different dimensions. Curious what advice you would give to young people who are wanting to make an impact in tech policy and help shape the future of some of these issues that we've been talking about.
2: Oh, you are completely speaking my language because my view is that this is an all hands on deck scenario. Um, We can't think about it from the traditional silos of having legal training or being a technologist, right? It's too easy. If you think about things requiring that disciplinary expertise, it's too easy to take yourself out of the equation to think as a lawyer, oh, that's that's deep in the weeds on the technology. I shouldn't be involved in that. Or as a technologist to think, oh, the policy and law folks will think about those aspects of what I'm building. It doesn't work that way. We really need a cross-sectoral approach to these questions. And for every person with humility still to go in and be bold and say, OK, I'm going to learn enough about this field to contribute to the public debate around it. Um, So I hope that we're reaching a moment where people feel empowered to participate in these conversations. Certainly, we need more minds um, engaged in them. We need just as many people as think about social justice issues more broadly to be translating that into the technological era and feel like they have a seat at the table in these complicated questions around technology. So that puts the burden on organizations like mine to make sure that we're making room at the table, that we're opening the door. But also I hope it means that we find young people that want to walk through that door and come join and realize that they have a really important perspective and a voice to add.
1: I love that answer, I'm so glad you said it. Uh, I think we all can agree this is all hands on deck Uh, and it's an interesting opportunity to be multi-dimensional in our thinking, to come outside of our lanes. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying and, and what we often preach is that we can no longer afford to be stuck in a lane. You can't just think of yourself as a lawyer. You have to be a lawyer who's thinking about the digital side, who's thinking about the role of the engineer. The engineer, likewise, needs to be thinking about the impact of their work. It's too much of a burden to put on one uh, profession, um, but together, I think we can have more success here. And to that point, um, I know you have appropriately held concerns about where AI could go wrong. Do you also see examples either in reality or uh, in what you hope to see of, of what where AI could be used for good in creating more inclusion and a more uh, diverse representation in tech and, and around the people supporting tech?
2: So the thing that I welcome and that does give me hope is that it feels like there are more people talking about these crossover issues than ever before. Right? There's a growing recognition, um, thanks to really hard work by a lot of advocates that's been going on for a while, about what some of the potential um, discriminatory effects are, the potential um, for bias. And so I really do welcome that there's just a more rigorous conversation than ever before about what to do about that. Now, do I think we have clean, neat solutions? Not yet. There's a long way to go. But I really do welcome the spirit of collaboration that people are bringing to this conversation and hopefully the spirit of responsibility that people are bringing to it too. And that gives me hope for the future.
0: That's great. So we we like to end our interviews with uh, the same question, uh, which is asking our guests for a rose, a thorn, and a bud around artificial intelligence specifically. The rose, something you're excited about or happy about that you've seen recently? The thorn is something that you're less excited about uh, or perhaps fearful of. And the bud is something um, out on the horizon that uh, is growing and that could be exciting in the future that we should be looking out for.
2: Yeah, the thing that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about right now is as we emerge from the pandemic, now that it does feel like there is some light at the end of the tunnel that we're moving to through 2021 and thinking about building back What does that mean for technology and how do we make sure that technology is creating opportunities for people as opposed to, you know, sowing division or fueling hate? So what are the interventions that will help make sure that technology is bringing people together, that it's powering social movements, not fostering division and dissension? How are we helping to close societal divides and not worsening them? To me, that's the rose, because I do think there is an opportunity there. It's the thorn because I worry about it too. Um, But above all, I think it's the bud of hope, right? That there is an opportunity here and folks in decision-making position are are listening uh, and paying attention to these questions, which to me just feels like an enormous opportunity for growth and for reckoning, um, but to continue building together a vision for how AI can be used in the world.
1: What a perfect place for us to end this thoughtful discussion. Alex, thank you for sharing your voice and your insights with us and our listeners. I always love talking with you and listening to your wisdom. Thank you for taking the time today.
2: Of course, it's so great to chat with you both. Thank you.
0: Well, that was another really fantastic and fascinating discussion. I uh, am so impressed by the work that Alex is doing and also just the passion that she clearly has for uh, the many, many issues and and implications that come up as we think about the role of artificial intelligence in society today.
1: Yeah, listening to Alex, it reminds me of this feeling I get sometimes listening to our guests that I'm just so grateful that someone with her brilliance and her insight and her passion is working on this issue that just needs as she says all hands on deck and particularly the multifaceted experience she brings to the table when working on policy having worked in the private sector having worked in academia uh and in and on the hill uh we need great thinkers like that and i'm so grateful that that she is one of the people working on these issues
0: absolutely uh, one last thing i'll i'll, I'll reflect on is I I heard her say something like technology is now one of the most important human rights issues that there are. And I think that that just really underscored for me this need to have all hands on deck to not just think about tech policy as being a technical domain for technical people, uh, but it really is something that affects all of us. And so we need to um, really include a lot more people in those discussions.
1: Absolutely. Looking forward to the next one.
0: Yeah. See you soon, Miriam. Take care, Mark. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org.
1: And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.